ah, the old topic of thyroid disorders and pregnancy. Just mentioning the subject brings up areas of controversy and areas open for debate. But that's what makes medicine fun. In June of 2020, ACOG will release a new practice bulletin entitled Thyroid Disorders in Pregnancy. And we're going to focus on three main areas that are somewhat controversial, but not according to the college. That's why it's important for us to pick a stance and take a side in this area because we can easily get confused by the different opinions. For example, sometimes the American Endocrine Society or the American Thyroid Association has different opinions about universal thyroid screening. So we'll cover that. What does the college say? Is it time to do universal screening for thyroid disorders? Well, let's find out. The second issue has to do with treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism. Is it time to treat that? We'll get into that as well. And the last or the third issue of controversy or discussion is what to do or should we even test for antithyroid antibodies. So we're going to cover these three somewhat controversial areas, but we'll get the college's stance on universal testing the treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism, and this whole issue of antithyroid antibodies. Y'all ready? Let's go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, everyone, let's get right to it, starting with universal screening of thyroid disease in pregnancy. Although some medical experts have made a call to action for universal thyroid screening in pregnancy, the truth is, is that professional societies have not made that call. According to the American College of OBGYN, universal screening for thyroid disease in pregnancy is not recommended because identification and treatment of maternal subclinical hypothyroidism has not been shown to result in any improved pregnancy outcomes or neurocognitive function in the offspring. So that kind of ties into two things, universal screening, which is not recommended, and the whole treatment issue of subclinical hypothyroidism. Now, there are some women who you should test for thyroid function. Indicated testing of thyroid function should be performed in women with a personal or a family history of the condition, type 1 diabetes, or if you suspect there may be a thyroid abnormality. The performance of thyroid function studies in asymptomatic pregnant women who have simply a mildly enlarged thyroid on exam is not warranted because, remember, up to 30% enlargement of the gland can occur, typically in pregnancy. In a pregnant woman who has, though, a significant goiter or with a distinct nodule, then thyroid function studies are appropriate because these physical exam findings could be considered a marker of true thyroid pathology. Remember that the large 2017 MFM units study on thyroid function in pregnancy found that subclinical hypothyroidism diagnosis and treatment during pregnancy did not improve the cognitive function of children at age 3 years and 5 years. So the ACOG the Endocrine Society, and the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommends against universal screening for thyroid disease in pregnancy and recommend testing during pregnancy only for women who meet the criteria that we've just covered. Additionally, the American Thyroid Association currently finds that there is insufficient data to recommend for or against universal thyroid screening. 
All right, we've just covered universal screening, and we touched on the whole issue of subclinical hypothyroidism. Subclinical hypothyroidism is defined as an elevated serum TSH level in the presence of a normal free T4. The prevalence of subclinical hypothyroidism in pregnancy has been estimated to be up to 5%. Subclinical hypothyroidism is unlikely to progress to overt hypothyroidism during pregnancy in otherwise healthy women. In the large 2012 randomized clinical trial called the Controlled Antenatal Thyroid Screening, as well as the 2017 SMFM study, both demonstrated no difference in neurocognitive development in offspring through age 5 who were born to women screened and treated for subclinical hypothyroidism. So according to the college, here it is, there is no evidence that identification and treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism thyroidism during pregnancy improves any obstetric or neonatal outcome. All right, now let's deviate here for just a minute because subclinical hypothyroidism seems to get all the attention. But what do we do with subclinical hyperthyroidism? Is that any different? Well, subclinical hyperthyroidism reported to occur in about 0.8 to 1.7% of pregnant women. So it's much less common than subclinical hypothyroidism. This is characterized, remember, by an abnormally low serum TSH, but normal free T4 levels. Importantly, it has not been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes either. Treatment of pregnant women with subclinical hyperthyroidism is not recommended by ACOG because there is no demonstrated benefit to the mother or the fetus. So now we've covered both subclinical hypo and hyperthyroidism. All right, friends, when we come back, let's tackle the last issue of what to do about those pesky thyroid autoantibodies. Are we supposed to be screening for these in pregnancy? Let's find out what ACOG says next. Measurement of antithyroid antibodies in situations of both overt and subclinical thyroid dysfunction have been proposed. Autoantibodies to thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin have been reported to occur in up to 20% of reproductive age women. Women with thyroid peroxidase antibodies are at increased risk for progression of thyroid disease and development of postpartum thyroiditis. Again, those are autoantibodies to thyroid peroxidase. However, most who test positive for these antibodies are otherwise euthyroid and not affected in the short term. Routine testing for thyroid antiperoxidase antibodies in women who are euthyroid, remember that's women with no history of thyroid disease and normal thyroid function tests, is not recommended because thyroid hormone replacement for antithyroid peroxidase antibodies alone has not been found to improve pregnancy outcomes. All right, let's take a look at the data because it can be kind of confusing. In an individual patient data systematic analysis of over 47,000 pregnant women, thyroid peroxidase antiantibody status remains significantly associated with preterm birth even after adjusting for subclinical hypothyroidism. However, in two subsequent trials, levothyroxine therapy, when compared with either no treatment or placebo, did not reduce the rate of preterm birth or improve other outcomes in thyroid peroxidase antibody positive euthyroid women. 
That information is similar to the 2017 MFM study that found that treating these women with thyroid peroxidase antibodies with levothyroxine just didn't have any difference in neurocognitive development in their offspring or any outcomes in pregnancy that were affected. So again, there doesn't seem to be any benefit to treating thyroid peroxidase positive antibody women with levothyroxine, so screening for them is somewhat unnecessary. But what about checking for autoantibodies against the thyroid receptor, like in Graves? Well, identification of thyroid antibodies, including thyroid receptor antibodies and thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin in Graves' disease, may establish those at an increased risk for fetal or neonatal hyperthyroidism. Identification of these kind of antibodies can help result in increased fetal surveillance with serial growth assessments by ultrasound or antepartum fetal surveillance. Alright, so this issue of testing for antibodies against the thyroid is somewhat different because of this issue with hyperthyroidism and antibodies that can pass through the placenta and stimulate the fetal thyroid. Because a large proportion of thyroid disease in women is mediated by antibodies that cross the placenta, there is a concern about the development of immune-mediated hyperthyroidism or potentially even hypothyroidism in the newborn when the mother carries these antibodies. Pregnant women with Graves' disease can have thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin and TSH-binding inhibitory immunoglobulins that can stimulate or inhibit the fetal thyroid respectfully. Now, in some cases, maternal TSH-binding inhibitory immunoglobulins may cause transient hypothyroidism in neonates of women who have Graves' disease. Also, 1-5% to of these neonates have hyperthyroidism or neonatal Graves' disease caused by this transplacental passage of maternal thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin. In neonates, maternal antibodies are cleared less frequently than the medication, which sometimes results in delayed presentation of neonatal Graves'. So, the pediatrician should be notified of maternal Graves' disease at the time of delivery and the neonate should be followed for potential development of Graves' disease himself or herself. The incidence of neonatal Graves' disease is unrelated, though, to current maternal thyroid function. The neonates of women with Graves' disease who have been treated surgically or who have had radioactive iodine-131 before pregnancy and whose mothers require no further treatment may still have circulating antibodies and therefore they can remain at risk of neonatal Graves' disease and they should be monitored accordingly. All right, as we wrap this up, we have to clarify this a little bit because this issue of graves is kind of confusing and the college kind of hedges its bet a little bit. Remember, we've just stated that the college recognizes that these thyroid autoantibodies can pass through the placenta to the child and result in neonatal thyroid disorders. It also states that identification of these antibodies may result in increased fetal surveillance with serial growth assessments by ultrasound or some antepartum fetal surveillance testing. 
The college recognizes that some clinicians may use antibody status to guide frequency of assessment of the fetus in women with hyperthyroidism. However, others may opt to serially assess regardless of antibody status, and that's just because the patient has a history or a known condition of hyperthyroidism. So the college states, quote, as such, testing of these antibodies may not influence management and therefore there is not strong evidence for routine assessment of these antibodies. In cases of hyperthyroidism in pregnancy, consultation with maternal fetal medicine subspecialists may be helpful for creation of a testing and a management plan, end quote. And that is how the college hedges its bet on testing for thyroid-stimulating antibodies in Graves' hyperthyroid women. All right, podcast family, let's bring this to a close. And it would be a disservice if we didn't make the distinction of how to follow up treatment for these two very different conditions, hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. Remember that the TSH level is what is followed in the pregnant woman who's being treated for hypothyroidism and the dose of levothyroxine should be adjusted accordingly with the gold TSH level being between the lower limit of the reference range and 2.5 milliunits per liter. Also, TSH typically is evaluated every four to six weeks while adjusting medications. However, although TSH is used for hypothyroidism follow-up, in cases of hyperthyroidism, the level of free T4 is what is monitored. This should be adjusted accordingly to achieve a free T4 at the upper end of the normal pregnancy range. Now, among women who also have T3 thyrotoxicosis, total T3 should be monitored with a goal level at the upper end of normal pregnancy range.